This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine. I'm Kate Davis, and you're listening to Ambition Diaries. On this second episode in our four-part miniseries, Still Not Equal, Stories of Discrimination in the Workplace. For some people, when they hear the words workplace discrimination, it calls to mind a bygone era of Mad Men-style overt sexism and racism. And while that kind of egregious behavior does still happen, the discrimination most prevalent in workplaces of all types can fly under the radar of those not experiencing it. It's in many of the issues that we try to root out regularly on this show and in our coverage online. It's in the C-suites that are still 90% white and male. It's in tone policing and microaggressions. It's in the persistent gender pay gap. It's in the motherhood tax and every hidden pregnancy. It's in the hollow corporate statements of inclusion. The foundation for inequality in our workplaces has been built on such a strong foundation that dismantling it is the work of much more than just one generation. And when the work of dismantling it falls on those without most of the power, Doing so can often come at great personal and professional risk. The stories that we'll hear on today's episode illustrate all of these issues. Often, both the mothers and the daughters that we'll hear from talk about being the only one in the room, the only woman, the only queer person, the only person of color. In these situations, it can feel impossible to make change. But as we'll hear from some of the daughters, while they still might be facing some of the same biases, they are much less likely to put up with it. Every single woman we talked to had experienced or at least witnessed discrimination in the workplace. But before we get into more detail of some of these women's individual stories, here's just a sample of what was shared. You know, sitting in meetings, like big meetings in conference rooms where I'm the only woman in the room, was always uncomfortable. And if I tried to assert myself, then I'd often find myself trying on behaviors that didn't really feel right to me, but seemed like they were needed in the moment. And sometimes I'd get feedback that I needed to be more of a jerk. Sometimes I'd get feedback that I was being too emotional. As like, I don't understand what you want from me. She reported to him and he called her a halitosis breath bitch in front of us, who were her direct reports. I would go and pitch to supermarkets and most of the store managers were male. Mm-hmm. And small little Asian girl comes in <laughs> just like, do you want to try this? Like, luckily some of them did say yes, but then there were a lot of people that didn't take you seriously, so. Maybe it's a girl. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's they because I'm a female. So I would have to work all day and then go back to Indiana and then he would have individual meetings, like meetings with the, the DJs first, meeting with the, um, the secretary's next. And so I would have to wait for the sales team. And he, and so, he was sending moms home last. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he was sending moms home last. I saw many complaints of sexual harassment come through that were either dismissed or ignored completely. And because we're brought up in this culture of like, you know, climb the ladder, do what you gotta do. Yeah. Oftentimes you have that nervous chuckle, that uncomfortable chuckle, or you turn the other cheek, 
and and you learn to stay silent because the few times that you do say something you're the troublemaker right exactly and you're gonna get retaliation yep. because of that and i learned to be quiet at that time men will get all the important positions mm-hmm. so managers supervisors we were just the crew that last voice you heard is kelly from los angeles who talked to her daughter bianca Kelly is a travel agent who moved to Southern California from Guatemala as a young adult. Eventually, Kelly would start her own business, but prior to that, she worked in management at a travel agency in South L.A. Her work was demanding and not at all accommodating to working mothers. At that time, all the managers were male. So I was the only female, the only one who had to worry about kids. And that is why we moved to Torrance, Mm -hmm. because I needed to be close to the office. And the office was here. Yeah. Remember the picnics? Yeah. All the the <laughs> managers with their wives. They were all housewives. Yeah. And taking care of the little kids. And I, here I come with my husband and three children. <laughs> <laughs> but what was that line? It was like uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. They both dance. <laughs> but Ginger had to do it in high heels <laughs> and backwards. So, But, but you worked a lot. And your dad was not happy. No. <laughs> not happy because he will come home, no dinner. <laughs> but oh. it is crazy to me looking back now. And I can't believe that none of us ever thought to start dinner without you. <laughs> like it never. And I'm so ashamed to admit it because it never occurred to us. To start dinner without you. And we would always like complain because we wouldn't eat dinner until like nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock. And it never occurred to us. Unfortunately, this expectation of women to do the bulk of housework, even if working the same or more hours than their male partners, has not changed. Prior to the pandemic, women were doing on average four hours of unpaid labor at home, while men were doing just two and a half hours. During the pandemic, those hours spent increased, and it's part of what drove the roughly 3.5 million women to cut back on their hours or leave their jobs altogether in 2020. But then motherhood tax at work extends far beyond the distribution of unpaid labor at home and work. Often, it starts with the potential to become mothers, Pregnancy discrimination at work has always been a major hurdle for career advancement or even just keeping your job. It's estimated that only 1% of workplace sexual harassment incidences are filed with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Pregnancy discrimination isn't much better. Only about 2% or 5,000 pregnancy discrimination charges were filed with the EEOC each year. But for many women, bias against pregnancy at work is ubiquitous to the point where it's common to try to hide a pregnancy for as long as possible. Francesca, who we heard from in the first episode of Ambition Diaries, talks with her mother, Demita, about the pervasive pregnancy discrimination she witnessed during her time working in HR at a startup tech company. Towards the end of my time there, we had some pregnant women. And man, the comment. First of all, we didn't even have a maternity leave policy. That had to be made then. And it was basic. It was like three months of leave, but only two weeks were paid. And the comments that those pregnant women received from other people, especially those in leadership, 
that of maternity leave being a vacation or when we had to extend a reasonable accommodation for a pregnant woman, well, we might as well fire her. We're just giving away money for free. I even had several women who were scared to announce their, their pregnancy. That was very, very common. They were scared mm-hmm. to announce their pregnancies because they were in fear of losing their jobs or being mistreated or disciplined because of now being pregnant. I remember very often hearing if somebody announced they were pregnant again. Also, I, I want to make a comment about how when you are trained in this kind of structure, you often become a perpetrator yourself. And I have seen, like, for instance, we had one pregnant woman tell her boss that she was pregnant. And just because she had had a baby the year prior, that woman boss asked her if she was sure she wanted to keep it. The sexism, the racism ran rampant. We're going to take a short break and we'll hear more from Francesca and Demita when we're back. This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. For Black women especially, racism and sexism cannot be decoupled. As we'll hear in some of these next stories, they face a double whammy of tone policing and stereotyping. Many companies started belatedly waking up to their shortcomings in hiring, promoting, and retaining BIPOC employees in the last few years. But despite a $9.3 billion investment in DEI globally this year alone, material change has been slow coming. Francesca and Demita recall several incidents from their past jobs where they experienced microaggressions and coded racism. These experiences are all too familiar for most women of color. I was one of the only Black women there or people there. And at the time, I was going through my, you know, transition back to having natural hair. You know, just... Can I touch your hair? People touching your hair without asking, um, making comments about my hair. Whenever I had to assert myself, my boss called me militant. Not in that moment, but in general. Yeah, no. In the early days, things that you would never, just could never even imagine. Even I remember as I grew through the ranks, I remember... When I got promoted to director, the first thing they they called it, you know, executive coaching. It was a 360 review. And so he got feedback about me from my peers as well as the people under me so that he could come back and, you know, give me this coaching. And the feedback was that I was smart and I knew I was smart, but I was intimidating to everybody else. And so the feedback for me was to energy match and to basically make myself smaller so that they could be comfortable, which was wild as hell to me. Your bosses? Yeah. My bosses, my peers, everything. I was, for them, too loud. And how did he put it to me? Which was, it was never a problem in New York. I think that was like a regional thing. And so he finally said to me, because I, you know, I was so upset when he gave me the feedback and he said, I understand. He's like, I hear exactly what you're saying. He says, but if you don't agree with it and you don't want to do it, then pack your bags and take yourself back to New York where that behavior is appreciated. But in here, you better learn how to say bless your heart. I remember him telling me that. 
I remember I learned to energy match. And if your energy felt smaller than mine, I would bring myself down so that you didn't feel threatened. Forced code switching, constant microaggressions, and coded racism can take a major toll on employees of color. But the extent of racism at work doesn't stop there and can even escalate to more frightening experiences of abuse. Tanya spent most of her career working in sales, often out in the field going door to door or visiting clients in their homes. Tanya talked to her daughter Nikki, a writer and actor, about the first time she experienced explicit racism at work while trying to visit a customer in the suburbs of Chicago. Warning, this story contains a racial slur. I work for Comcast. I remember going to Tinley Park and I would go to this man's house, you know, because he was one of the customers for, for Comcast. I remember going to his house and him not being home. And my job was to see if he wanted any upgrades for what he had. And I would go to his house and he would never answer the door. So I was driving by one time and I noticed him and a young lady in their garage. And so I'm like, oh, great. He's home now. Mm-hmm. So I pulled over and I'm walking towards his house and he's like, Hey, stop coming to my house. Get off of my property, you nigger. You stop coming by here. And so I said, I'm somebody's mother, Mm -hmm. somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. I'm somebody. He said, get off of my property before I call the police. And I looked up within five minutes, the Tinley Park police was there. Like I had really did something bad. And I explained to them that I work for Comcast. Here's a list of all my customers. I'm going by my customer's house. And they told me to leave, to go, oh that I, that not to come back to Tony Park. That was actually my first real encounter with racism. Because remember, I grew up in West Pullman. Right. <laughs> so I grew up with everybody who was the same color as me. But I never thought that people would be like that because I'm fun loving. I love everybody. You mm-hmm. know, I got a personality and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, you know... What did I do wrong? Right. You know, I'm just doing my job. Mm -hmm. And just seeing the reality of prejudices. In the world. Yeah, yeah. Just see how people are really racist. Mm -hmm. And so it it really, really hurt. And I remember telling my son, this is the real world. Tanya's story is a reminder of how the scale of racism people of color can face while just doing their job can escalate, in some cases, to actual danger. On the opposite end of that scale are workplaces that may perform inclusion and even come with the best of intentions, but still fall well short. Nikki talks about her experience at a company with this problem and what ultimately led her to quit. I worked for a nonprofit here in Chicago for four years, and the day I quit... I did not know I was going to quit that morning, but I had had enough of how that nonprofit was ran by a a white person. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the black workers just felt unseen, unheard. And remember, I called you like, I'm about to quit. Mm -hmm. And you didn't talk me off the ledge. (laughs) (laughs) Steve at the time, he he didn't talk me like my best friend. Nobody said, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Everybody said, you are worth more than this. And so recently, I emailed the founder. Mm -hmm. I emailed her at the height of George Floyd. 
Every yeah. nonprofit, every organization, every business were saying Black Lives Matter. They had the black squares mm-hmm. and all this stuff on their websites. Mm-hmm. And they were one of them. And oh, really? so I sent this person an email and I said, you know, I, I don't know if you remember, but one of the reasons why I had to quit is because when my cousin passed away, you all gave me a certain amount of time and then you wanted me right back at work. And the reason why you wanted me back at work is because you said she was not my biological sister, mm-hmm. even though she was my roommate. Mm-hmm. So when she passed away, we lived in the same apartment together. Right, right, right. right. That's already red flag. My roommate has passed away, mm-hmm. and she was my cousin. In a black family, your cousins are your sisters. Mm-hmm. So now you're saying black lives matter. But if black lives matter, black culture has to matter. Throughout the struggles for equality, there's an often used Martin Luther King Jr. quote. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Here, in these stories of sexism and racism that permeate work and personal interactions, the slow progress of change can feel the most pronounced. Francesca dealt with some of the same feelings of tokenism and internalized sexism that her mother did. Cassandra and Christine, who we heard from in the montage at the top of the episode, found that the best way to get supermarket placement was to hire a male sales team. But where Tanya was powerless against a white racist customer, her daughter Nikki felt more empowered in white spaces and stood up to her tone-deaf and insensitive boss. I'm in these white spaces that I'm going to lift up mm-hmm. being black. Right. Right, <laughs> and right. so we, I'm going to make y'all feel, right. you know, the blackness while we're here. Change is slow, too slow, but we have to believe that things will get better. On the next episode of Ambition Diaries, leaning in and opting out, calculating work and family. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. For more Ambition Diaries, including individual photos, interviews, and audio clips from all seven mothers and daughters, visit fastcompany.com backslash ambition hyphen diaries. Ambition Diaries was produced by Joshua Christensen with editing by Nicholas Torres. Ambition Diary reporters are Laura Delch, Jordan Gaspore, Deborah John Lee, Jill Jordan Sider, Corinne Ruff, Lauren Vespoli, and Akila Wise. Special thanks to the Economic Hardship Reporting Project for their partnership on Ambition Diaries. <laughs>